Welcome to the Media Nerds Podcast. I'm Dan Vadabonker. This is a special edition of the podcast featuring Winnipeg filmmaker Sean Garrity. We've had him on the podcast before. He's a super nice guy and a great guest. This is actually audio from one of our guest speaker sessions. Sean was nice enough to speak with our Crecom students about his career as a filmmaker in Canada, and it was a fascinating conversation. Sean Garrity's new film, I Propose We Never See Each Other Again After Tonight, is now playing in theaters across Western Canada. You can find the trailer linked in the show notes below. Thanks so much to Sean for speaking with our students and for being on the podcast. Now on with the show. Uh, Sean, let's see how many of your films I can rattle off here. I've seen oh, them wow. all. I've seen them all, except not uh, the one that you didn't write. So you can okay, good. Me. So okay, yeah, <laughs> all right. That one's that one's so, good to forget about. <laughs> that's the one I didn't see. So you are the director of Inertia, Lucid, Zoe and Adam, uh-huh. Blood Pressure, which is my favorite of your films, but I have not me seen too. the new one. All right, right. Um. Oh, oh, great. Now I have. Oh, and. The new film is called I Propose We Never See Each Other Again After Tonight. Thank Correct. you for the cue behind you. Yes, and w- which film did I forget? Zoe and Adam, did I say that? Yeah, you said that. You missed, uh, ironically, you missed the one that that has that I wear like an albatross oh, around my neck. My awkward sexual adventure. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with why is, is that film an albatross around your neck? Well, I, you know, I, I made a lot of films, as you know, uh, so, you know, working here in Winnipeg, uh, working as a film director, I've made like eight, eight films. You actually also missed uh, Borealis. Oh, um, Borealis. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, and a lot of them are uh, thrillers and a lot of them are dramas and a lot of them are kind of festival art films. But in 2013, I made uh, a romantic comedy that was kind of disguised as a sex comedy. Uh, and it was called My Awkward Sexual Adventure. Um, and we, uh, to our great surprise, the Toronto Film Festival picked it up and put it on their top 10, I guess, cause to play counterpoint to all of the sort of more serious stuff they were showing. Um, and then, you know, an American distributor picked it up right away and Tribeca picked it up in the United States. And in no time, it was being sold in uh, 24 countries and translated into 15 languages. And I don't know how much of this, you know, Kenton, this is very, very funny. Um, Lithuania did a remake of the movie, um, like they actually remade it, like, and, and which is very, very funny. Um, and the, the Lithuanian remake did so well that the Ukraine also bought the remake rights and they remade it. Um, and as we speak, uh, India, not Bollywood, India is uh, busily doing a, a remake for their kind of HBO streaming, uh, service, like the, the Netflix of, of India. Um, and you know, as a result of, of that success, you know, I mean, h- I don't know how many Canadian films get remade in Lithuania. <laughs> My guess is not very many. Um, but as a result of all that success, I got a, a, a deluge of offers from you know, producers and financiers and whatever else who wanted me to make more sex comedies, even though I kind of pointed out to them that awkward sexual adventure wasn't really a sex comedy. It was a romantic comedy disguised as a sex comedy. Nonetheless, uh, I got just all these offers and we would go to talk to people about other films that we were trying to get made. Um, and people would be like, okay, is it, is it a comedy like awkward? And we'd be like, well, no, it's a drama. They'd be like, we want you to make a comedy like awkward. So we'd have to sort of go back to the drawing board and be like, could it, could it be a comedy? How do we pitch this as a comedy? Because they'll only give us the money if they think it's a comedy. Um, and, and as a result, uh, Borealis, uh, the film that we made kind of next after Awkward Sexual Adventure, a, a drama, like very clearly that film is a drama. And it's about, uh, you've seen it, but for those who haven't, I mean, the film is about uh, a young like a 13 year old, 15 year old actually, uh, girl who's who's losing her sight. And when her father uh, gets the doctor's prognosis that she's going to go blind within probably six months, completely blind, that the last tests that they did failed and there's no hope and there's no way that they can, they can fix her blindness. The dad kind of um, sheds his, his everything, his job, his everything, his life, and they get into a car and they drive up to uh, Churchill, although, 
you can't drive to Churchill. They, they figure that out of the way. They drive up to <laughs> Churchill so he can show her the, 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 uh, the Northern Lights, which is the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life. And he wants her to see it before she loses her sight. Um, and so clear, clearly a drama. He's also got a gambling issue and she's got like a drug abuse problem. And like, it's, it's dark, dramatic stuff. And these funders are like, so, so is it a comedy? Like awkward sexual adventure? And I was like, yeah, but not really. But when we had to go back and sort of reform it, we ended up using Little Miss Sunshine as our corollary film. So we go back to the money people and say, yeah, it's going to be hilarious. We're putting Kevin Pollack in it. It's going to be very, very funny. Uh, and they were like, huh, blindness, drug abuse, gambling issues. This doesn't really look like a comedy. And we were like, but think about Little Miss Sunshine. Right, like the, the suicide, and the grandpa dies, and it's like the 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 young kid can't like his dreams are smashed about becoming an astronaut. Like you know th that serious stuff, it can also be very funny. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> and that was how that was we had to do to sell that movie because after awkward sexual adventure, all anyone wanted to see me do was comedies. Wow, that is an albatross. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is Ukrainian remake. That's an albatross. Yeah. The Ukrainian remake, the actual, the Lithuanian remake is, is the funniest. Um, and one of the most hilarious things about, about the Lithuanian remake, I haven't watched the entire Ukrainian remake yet. Uh, they send them to us and they're like, do you need to wait for the subtitles? And I'm like, nah, I got it. <laughs> I, I, you know, having written it, I get it. Um, but uh, like the decisions, you realize that as a director of, of cinema, you end up making you know, how many thousands of decisions. Uh, that, that's kind of the, the job when you're a director. You're just deciding, you know, wardrobe comes up and they're like, blue shirt, green shirt, right? And it, the props department comes up and does he carry this wallet or does your character carry this wallet? Like, it's just a, a series of endless decisions. And when I saw the Lithuanian remake, you'd see decisions that they imitated that we took for often no reason at all. Uh, because they thought that it had some meaning to it. So, for example, there was a scene in the movie where um, the kind of the ex of our lead character, she has a moment, he's gone off to Toronto, she's still back in Winnipeg, she's wanted to pursue her own kind of sexual adventures, but she realizes that she she's pining for this guy. And there's a moment where she's sitting down at her mirror and she's looking up at pictures of them as a couple. And she's like, oh yes, oh, those good times. And then she decides she's gonna go pursue him in Toronto, which of course ends in disaster. But um, I, you know, I wanted to have a bunch of pictures on the wall behind her mirror, because for me, it was kind of symbolic of her first relationship second. But when the grips were moving the mirror into the room, they chipped it on the, on the doorway and the, a little crack appeared in the corner of the mirror. And we got it on set and we looked at it and I sort of thought, Mm, that kind of sends a message about their economic status that is not the message that I want to send. Like, she's not a character who would have a chip mirror. That's not the character that she is. If there was a chip in her mirror, she'd buy a new mirror. That's so. But we only have one mirror and we got to get the shot today. So I said, let's take all those pictures off the wall and let's plaster them around the edge of the mirror like petals on a flower. And, and I'll let go of my idea of her first relationship second, and we'll just have these pictures around and she can look at them and do her thing, right? And then when you watch the Lithuanian remake, they have made that same choice because they've assumed I made that choice for some thematic or content related reason. <laughs> and there's just like, like literally a thousand of those in the movie. It was uh, enjoyable for me, maybe more than anyone else, I think. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I should, by the way, I should have said at the beginning, I'll probably ask about 20 minutes worth of questions, 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll turn things over uh, to the class to ask questions too. So I don't want uh, people to be shifting in their seats going, oh, time's running out. I'll just sort of get like some of the basic stuff, uh, ask some of the basic stuff, and then we'll turn things over to them. Um, of course, the reason you're here today is you have a new film. And uh, you were supposed to come to class. <laughs> uh, boy, was that a comedy of errors. You were supposed to come to class literally, I think, the Friday that you were going to come talk to last year's first year students. Your film was about to open, and then that was the day everybody went home. I think the very day for the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, so, wow, talk about timing. Um, but then now your film is ultimately opened again. So maybe tell us, like, what happened? How, what happens when your film is coming up? <laughs> <laughs> the day the pandemic hits, and then what has the upshot of that been now, now that your film has been released? 
Yeah, it's been a real blessing in disguise, actually. So the movie was originally slated to open on March 20th. Um, and of course, March 17th was the day that Cineplex shut down all their cinemas. So we were opening at McGilvery. Uh, actually, we were only opening at, at Northgate. Uh, the Northgate Cinema was the only cinema that we could get because Canadian films, as a rule, only ever get one cinema in a city. Uh, you'd, you'd never see a Canadian film on, on more than one screen. Um, it, once at a, at a seminar, actually, at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, I was talking about, and I loosely, without thinking, said that a Bruce McDonald film had opened on a couple of screens in Winnipeg, and I was about to go on, and people's hands shot up, and they're like, wait a minute, are you telling us that a Canadian film opened on more than one screen? And I had to rethink it and go, oh, actually, maybe I'm wrong about that. Sorry, I'm probably wrong about that. And, and indeed, I was, because they never give you more than one screen. So we were opening at the North Gate. Um, and because this film, my main character is uh, Filipino-Canadian, and in fact, because of my 29 actors, 20 of them are Filipino-Canadian, and we have scenes in Tagalog, well, a mix of Tagalog and English, and, um, you know, we thought the Northgate was a good place for it uh, to play. So we were going to open in the Northgate on the 20th. On the 17th, Cineplex shuts down everything. And so all the press that I had kind of been spending, you know, you have students, who I think we're studying publicity and uh, that kind of stuff as well, right? Um, all the press that it takes forever to get going that we had spent three weeks kind of working up was all kind of for nothing. And we had articles everywhere. We'd been on CBC. We had stuff in the free press. It was all for nothing. And we sadly took our baseballs and went home. <laughs> um, and, and then in July, you know, Cineplex, announced that they were reopening with like a severely curtailed uh, capacity in their cinemas, as well as every second row, you know, every second row is empty and four seats on either side are empty and they're, they're sandblasting and disinfecting the cinemas between screenings. And, um, and so I was talking with my distributor in Toronto, Mongrel Media, uh, and they were like, yeah, I don't know. Like, no one's really going to, to cinemas. They were like, you know, they, they, I, they said, where do you want to open? And I said, Grant Park. And they said, you know, I'm just looking now. I hear the sound of this keyboard. You know, this this weekend, it was a long weekend in 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 the like late July, like long weekend. He was like, this weekend, the biggest film that Grant Park had made $750 for the whole long weekend. Right. And that's showing like a 133, 35, 37, 39, 30 show every day. A typical box office haul for an American film in a theater like that would be about twelve to fifteen thousand dollars. Um, so my distributor was like, I just, you know, nobody's going to the cinema right now. Uh, and as a result, uh, the Americans are pulling back all their films. Like Hollywood's just not releasing anything. Uh, at the time he was like, you know, August 28th, they're going to release a film called Tenet. But aside from that, nothing's being released. Um, and I had this memory, Kenton, I don't know if you and I have ever discussed this, but I, 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 I was studying the, kind of the history of music in this brief period in the 1980s when the payola scandal erupted and the record companies stopped paying payolas very briefly to radio stations and it created a little opening and a bunch of music that never would have um, caught the public's attention kind of grew up in the, in the cracks of that, notably rap music. Uh, was kind of born out of that temporary, you know, uh, release of control by by companies over radio stations. And so I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. If no Hollywood films are showing, doesn't that create maybe a little space for us to like put the film up? And maybe we don't have to have Hollywood numbers on our opening weekend. Like usually your opening weekend in a theater, if you don't get, you know, 2000 people to come to your film, you're out. And a Hollywood film moves in. But I was like, maybe because there are no Hollywood films, and you know we don't have any publicity money. Maybe we can do a little bit of publicity, get a few people to come, and then word of mouth will will keep us going. And and in fact, we were very lucky. That's exactly what happened. We opened August twenty first, um, and uh, we done a little bit of publicity, and theaters were like selling out. We had ten sellouts in our first week, which is incredible. Until you realize that a sellout in a pandemic is like a thirty five seat hall. <laughs> Right, because because <laughs> all the rest of the seats are blocked off for social distancing. So really, you you know, you put thirty five people in a cinema, you're sold out. So we were like selling out all over the place. Great victory, um, and as a result, uh, Cineplex, uh, because we we did so, we actually rocketed into the top five Canadian box office films, like in the whole country, uh, in our first week with like thirty five seat halls filling them. Right, uh, and we opened on two screens. I I said to the distributor. You know, he was like, okay, so we'll open you at Northgate again. And I was like, could you, I know, I know it's Cineplex, so we can't get Grant Park. Could you talk to them about McGilvery? 
And he's like, well, I don't want to cannibalize screens in Winnipeg. And I was like, trust me, nobody in South Winnipeg is going to get in their car and drive to the North Gate to see a little Canadian movie. Like, that's just not, let me explain something to you about Winnipeg. Um, and so he, he was like, okay, let me ask. He's like, you know, they'll say no because they never release a Canadian film on more than one screen. But I was like, okay, ask because we got one screen. If they say no, we still got one screen. Uh, so he went to Cineplex and he was like, can we open this Canadian film on two screens in Winnipeg? And they're like, yeah, sure. I mean, we don't understand what's happening. We don't know what's going on. So they gave us two screens. Um, they did really well. So actually McGilvery, uh, put us, we overflowed onto a second screen. We actually booted out Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man movie, because nobody was seeing that and we were selling out. So they, we were on three screens and did really well and got into the top five. And so Cineplex was like, oh my God, these guys know how to fill a theater during this pandemic and we can't, like, New Mutants failed, like all the new movies that are unhinged with Russell Crowe failed, they just couldn't get people into cinemas. But we could. So they, in week two, which was last week, they expanded us across the country and suddenly we were playing in Toronto and Mississauga and Scarborough and Vancouver and Surrey. Today we open additionally in Calgary and Edmonton. And we just got held over everywhere we played. Um, and it wasn't, again, not because we're doing fantastic numbers. It's because our numbers are mediocre and Hollywood's just not releasing anything. They're not releasing anything. There's, there's you know, they're like, wow, this Canadian film's not doing very well. What else do we got? Uh, oh, nothing. <laughs> so I guess we keep it. Um, so yeah, at the moment, I have this giant release uh, for the third week in a row. We were in Canada's top five box office earners. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, film, the, the narrative that we will sell, you know, again, in terms of publicity, which is kind of what's top of my mind at the moment, because it's what I'm embroiled in. The narrative of the film that we're selling to other stakeholders in the Canadian film industry is the story of this giant success. And, you know, in, the, in reality, it's eh, kind of a mediocre success. <laughs> uh, right. And it, it, it's funny because a lot of people I know were like, oh, yeah, there'll be a giant sort of asterisk beside the story of your success in the future. And I was like, no, 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 there won't be. People won't remember. Are you kidding? People don't remember anything. Remember that? Remember that African guy, that that warlord? And he was like all over the Internet and everything for like Please. everywhere for like, a, yeah. What Please. happened to that guy? No one remembers that guy. <laughs> right? <laughs> this, it's 2020, man. People aren't going to remember anything. Uh, anyway, so. <laughs> no one remembers so, shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's uh, right. So, so yeah, so that's where we are at. We have been uh, held over for a fourth week um, in Winnipeg on both of those screens. We're McGilvery's number one movie and, oh, actually, no, since Tenet, we're number two. But we're Northgate's number one movie. Um, and so they have renewed us for a fourth week. And, yeah, I, I spent the morning actually doing morning radio shows in Calgary and Edmonton. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, pretty good. So, and so your film then, is it extended another week now? Or so where are yes, we it at? Is. Wow. So, and it's we on a week to week. Yeah, it's on a week to week. That's how, that's how the cinemas sort of work. So on Sunday night, uh, Cineplex looks at how much did they make? Like after the nine o'clock shows go in on Sunday, they basically count their beans and say, uh, you know, these ones go, these ones stay. Those decisions are made. You know, the, the numbers come in on Sunday night. Monday morning, they sit down to their numbers and they're like, go stay, go stay, go stay. Uh, and then they'll usually decide where things are going Monday, end of day or Tuesday morning. And that's when I get word. Um, oh, hey, you're like, which, which sometimes kind of sucks. Like this week, uh, for example, we found out about Edmonton on uh, Tuesday. And so suddenly I got three days to get a hold of all of the press in Edmonton and try and get people to write reviews and see the movies and put me like, and like a lot of radio shows and certainly all TV shows, they got all their guests and stuff booked up like two weeks in advance, right? Me calling on Tuesday saying, hey, can I find a place on your show? It's a, it's a tough sell. Um, but yeah, the, that's what the festival, that's what the, uh, the, the uh, cinemas do is they decide uh, on the Sunday night, they make announcements on the Monday uh, and then they decide precisely what theaters on on the Tuesday. Uh, so at the moment, we are extended everywhere uh, until September 17th. Uh, this coming Monday or possibly Tuesday, I'll find out if we're extended, like where we are extending further and where else we might be opening. Uh, I know a lot of theaters luckily have actually called Cineplex asking for the film. Um, so we've got a, cup, a couple for next week already. And then, you know, we'll see how it goes from there. 
All right, just a couple more things before we turn things over uh, to the students. First of all, uh, well, you, you started making films with one name in them, and now you're making one word in them, and now you're making films with a hundred <laughs> words in the title. So you, you have to tell us how that came about. And I, I sort of blame my awkward sexual adventure for that. But, but I'll, say, I'll see what you blame for that. And then, and then the second question is, or it's not really a question, but uh, I'd love it if you could tell the students what your film's about. It's a very Winnipeg story. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, so yeah, first of all, yeah, it's true. I made a, my first film was called Inertia and my second kill film was called Lucid, uh, you know, and the Winnipeg Free Press wrote an article, Morley Walker wrote like, what is his next film going to be called Entropy? Right? Like, <laughs> and, and I, I remember when I, pr when I presented Inertia at the uh, South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, we had people in the audience, like a significant number of people in the audience who didn't know what the title meant, like did, had never seen the word before. I guess slept through that lecture in physics class. Um, and so, you know, I, I was as an auteur, as an artist, very interested in finding these kind of poetic titles that I felt spoke to the subject matter of the film and had applications in a number of different uh, ways, uh, like someone would title a poem or a song. But as I got older and more cynical, I realized that your title, when it comes to a movie, is actually your first marketing tool. Um, and so my awkward sexual adventure, which I thought was a terrible title when my co-producer suggested it to me, ended up being one of our most successful titles precisely because it told the audience right away what kind of a movie they were, they were in for. Uh, and so since then I've been more conscious of like, okay, um, we had a different title for this originally and, uh, we, we got rid of it and I, I feel like, I propose we never see each other again after tonight. Right away says indie, indie comedy, indie romantic comedy, especially in combination with the image on the poster. I think it, it really does a lot of the marketing work for us in terms of telling people what the film is. No one's gonna look at that poster and read that title and think they're in for a big budget sci-fi. Like right away, we are telegraphing what it's about. Um, and so in this film, I don't know if I've told you this story, Kenton. Uh, when I lived in, I used to live in, in Argentina, and when I lived in, in Buenos Aires, I met this woman uh, and her fiance in a bank. We were changing dollars to pesos. And I lived there, I was going to school, film school in, in Buenos Aires, but they were backpackers. And we got talking, they were from Vancouver, and oh, wow, we're Canadians, isn't that cool, blah, blah, blah. They sort of said, we're just in here for a few days, but we'd love to, like, I wish we could get access to like, you know, parties and meeting local people and stuff. Cause you never see that as a backpacker. And I was like, well, I'm going to a party tonight. I mean, a bunch of film students, if that interests you, but, and they were like, oh my God, we would love that. Let's meet at this cafe at 11 PM. Cause that's kind of the schedule of things in Argentina. Let's meet at 11 PM. We'll have a drink. We'll go to the party at 11 PM. She shows up with no fiance and we sit down and she's like, yeah, my fiance, he's got a, a stomach thing and South America isn't really agreeing with him. And he was kind of ill. He, he wanted me to come along ahead, but I, so I, I'm coming along and he's, he's staying back. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And we sort of started our, our first drink. And she was like, and I have to tell you, I'm actually, even though we're engaged, I'm having an affair. And I was like, what? And she started telling me about this affair she was having. And I kind of had this moment of like, oh yeah, this person's from Vancouver. I'm from Winnipeg we're years apart. We live in different, I'm, I'm never going to see this person again. So I was like, well, I've got something to tell you. And I, I unburdened myself of a secret that I had and she unburdened and we spent the whole night. We stayed until three in the morning at this cafe, at this bar, telling each other our darkest secrets. Uh, and then she went back to her fiance and I went back to my, uh, I actually went to my party um, and, and we never saw each other again. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to make that kind of the meet cute in a romantic comedy? I kind of wrote it down. I was like, someday I'm going to put that in a film. So this film starts that way. My two leads, um, a Filipina uh, girl and a Mennonite boy, which was something that I felt I wanted to do because it was going to be a very Winnipeg film. So I thought those two sort of foundational cultures of this city should be my two main characters. Um, and they're pushing a stranger's car out of the snow, as one does. Uh, and their faces are colored in covered in balaclavas and scarves, and they think they know each other, but then they reveal their faces and they don't know each other. But they go for a drink, and when they go for a drink, she says, listen, we don't know each other's names yet, so I propose we never see each other again after tonight, and therefore we can share all these secrets. So that's kind of how the film starts. That's where the title comes from. Excellent. And 
the story is a Mennonite man, uh, and that's Winnipeg, very yeah. Winnipeg, and a Filipina woman. That's right. Meeting and falling in love. Like, yes. like, like always happens in Winnipeg. Is that, <laughs> like, is that is that a is that a trope? It's 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 not yet, but why isn't it? That's what I say. When when you think of the movie um, Analyze This, right, and and its and its terrible sequel, I think was called Analyze That, um, yeah. right, which was Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro, and Billy Crystal is playing like Jewish psychologist in New York, and Robert De Niro is playing you know Italian mafia guy in New York, and as soon as they pitched that film. Everyone is like, oh, that's going to be so funny. I can totally picture it in my head. It's going to be so funny. And it occurred to me that the Americans are much better than we are at marketing their very local cultures, right? Like the New York Jewish intellectual and the New York Italian kind of street smart guy. We know those guys. Like America has really done a great job of telling their own stories to the rest of the world. And so we know those characters. And it got me thinking, well, why don't we know the Winnipeg versions of those characters? And why don't we tell those stories more, not just to ourselves, but also to the world, right? I mean, I, I when I'm talking to the press in Toronto and, and Vancouver and, and, and so forth, I often, when we talk about this, I often say, okay, fill in the blank here. One out of every 10 Winnipeggers is, and they'll be like, frozen, lonely, like whatever, right? Whatever whatever stereotypes they have about Winnipeg. But of course the answer is, you know, Filipino, claims Filipino heritage, one out of every 10. So you sort of say to yourself, uh, so how come we haven't seen a whole bunch of more of them in our movies and our TV shows? Like, where are they, right? Um, and so, I mean, that was part, and uh, similarly with, with I think with uh, Mennonites, in case you, you happen to know any, um, you know, I think there's this image when you talk to people again from Toronto or from the States and you say, oh, yeah, my best friend, he's Mennonite. They go, oh, what? He like drives an ox cart and he like lives, right? And you're like, no, that's not really what uh, they're like. I mean, it's, I, some of them are, I guess, but I mean, um, and so I kind of thought, you know, here are, here are two cultures that really, for me growing up, were, were cornerstone, like building block Winnipeg cultures. Cultures that aren't just like, in Winnipeg, but that I personally feel like you take those cultures out of Winnipeg and we're no longer Winnipeg. We're some different city with a different personality because such is the importance of the contribution that they make to the overall culture of our city. So it was really important for me that, that, that they come from those two cultures. Now, as it turns out, um, my characters in my movie, he's from Morden, but she grew up in the city. So her, her family plays a lot more than his family does. And so that's how we ended up with 20 out of 29 actors being Filipino Canadian. It's I love the idea uh, for, for the film. I haven't seen it yet, but I can't wait to see it. Um, we're gonna tr turn things over to students in just one second here. But of course we promised them a tale from, uh, I've known you forever. And uh, as you know, I'm the best audio playback man in the business, albeit sometimes distracting to actors. Sometimes I'm distracting to actors. We learn. Um, and uh, yeah, so the less we talk about that, the better. But we used to work together at the, at the town. At the Cinema, town Cinema 8. That's not right. Not far from where we would be at Red River College if we were actually there. And, uh, and uh, uh, probably my favorite story about working as ushers at the town cinema is the night, the famous New Year's Eve, where you were the sole usher working at the town cinema. And just tell everybody what happened. And then... That's, you're talking about the, the Mickey and Maude uh, disaster, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming, yes. So Maude, Johnny Davis right. disaster, yeah. Right, yeah. I, I was actually gonna tell the story of how you and I took a poll of people coming into the theaters as we were ripping their tickets on Adam's Family versus the Munsters, <laughs> which I still feel was unfairly answered. Um, but um, yeah, right, yeah, that, that night at the Town Cinema 8, back in, in ancient days um, that, that your students, I'm sure, can't even possibly imagine, films used to be projected uh, on film, like on actual film. It was a celluloid strip of images <laughs> that ran through a projector. Maybe students actually do know that. But um, so, you know, all films were projected on film, and in the Town Cinema that has eight cinemas, they would project each theater had its own film. But because they were cheapskates, when there was a big film that would fill more than one auditorium, they would only order one film 
and they would have it feed into one uh, projector and come out of the projector. And instead of being wound up on the take up reel, they would wind it around like a, like a microphone stand and a ruler and a whole bunch of other stuff to be fed into the next projector. And then it would come out of there and get wound around a bunch of stuff that the projectionist happened to find in the projection booth to go into a third projector. Um, and that way the cinema only had to pay for one print, but they got to show it in three cinemas. Uh, however, of course, what that did is it put terrible strain on the actual film, um, which was stretched and pulled beyond its capacity. And so often you'd be working at the cinema as an usher and you'd hear a great roar come up in one of the cinemas and you'd go into the cinema and you'd see that the film had snapped and they had no image on their screen. At which point, instead of calming down the audience, we would run to the next cinema because we knew that we had about a 30 second leeway before that image would snap and we'd stand in the back just to watch the audience react in horror. And then we'd run to the third cinema and watch it happen again. Oh my God, it was so much fun. Um, yes, and on, on, on New Year's Eve, people who decided to go see the Hollywood classic Mickey and Maude were all uh, disappointed that the, the repairs on that film to get it running again took them past the midnight hour. And so they had to spend their happy new year moment sitting in a cinema watching a blank screen. And they were, they were very unhappy, very, yeah. very unhappy. And they let the soul usher know how unhappy they were. They sure did. There was an <laughs> uprising. <laughs> yeah, I, we're, we're, we're lucky that did not fall into the hands of the public that cinema that very night. And, and there was a strict no refunds policy, which basically puts you put, like you you might have had to run out of there with your life kind of thing. Like oh, yeah. you, Manage, that's yeah. right. The manager would hide in his office downstairs and close the door and say, tell them they're not getting their money back. Slam. That's right. <laughs> All right. And before we turn things over, uh, what, hey, wow us with uh, the big names that you've worked with. And then we'll turn things over to students. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think before I the big names, I mean, I, I have worked with Kevin Pollack. Uh, with Joey King, who's been doing really well. She's got a new Netflix series. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's very popular. Yeah. Um, and she, uh, she's, a, she's a star as well. I worked with uh, Portia Doubleday, who was in Mr. Robot um, as the, the, the girlfriend. And uh, Chris Noth, notably Mr. Big from Sex and the City, uh, I have directed. As well as uh, Jean-Marc Vallée uh, and um, what's, uh, I can't remember his name now. The, whose line is it anyway? Colin Mockery. Oh, oh yeah. love that guy. So funny. Um, and so on and so on and so on. Callum Keith Rennie. And I've worked with lots of... Uh, oh, Tatiana. The, Tatiana Maslany, of course, in Blood Pressure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from Orphan Black. Uh, five roles in Orphan Black or seven roles or whatever she played. Uh, so yeah, I've had the, the good fortune of working with lots of great actors. And you get a sense when you audition them and work with them in the room of what their charisma kind of is and then how to, how to play that best on screen. So I just want to plug, if I can, when we were auditioning uh, young Filipina actors for the lead role in this movie, um, I had someone come into the room. She was auditioning for a very small part. It was a two-day two uh, kind of walk-on um, that we were going to shoot on a weekend. And she had this, this, this charisma and this energy, and we kept her in the room. We'd sort of, I auditioned people two at a time. I kept her in the room. I'd sort of say, okay, you, sir, thank you very much. We'd send in someone else. But I was like, Hera, if you could stay. And we'd bring in someone else, and we'd bring in someone else. And we auditioned her for 40 minutes in that room with a whole bunch of different scene partners. And I pushed her to the comedy and to tragedy and to rage and to all sorts of – and she just – she had all of this range. And when she left the room, myself and my casting director and my co-producer were, like, sad because we weren't watching her anymore. Like we felt we we missed her already the second she left the room. And I was like, oh my God. So I ran out and I said to her, I know you came to and applied for this small part, but would you be interested in playing the lead? Um, and she said, no. And then there's another story about how I had to convince her to play the lead. But the idea that when an actor really has that something, that energy, that shine, you like, you feel it. And when you're working with a lot of these big actors who've been very successful and you're in their presence, it's just... It's an amazing energy that you can sort of feel off of someone that like, you know, it's, it's a cliche when you see a movie about the movie business and like that girl has it, she has it. But it's true. You can, when, when an actor has it, you can really feel it. And this young woman, this is her first movie. But when she was in that room, we were like just basking in the glow of her, of her energy. And we, we managed to, to put it into the movie, uh, which uh, has been great for her. I feel, I feel bad for her co-star up here. Christian Jordan, 
who's an amazing actor, but the press across the country has just been, who is this incredible woman and what an incredible future she has and what range. And even we got one really bad review from grumpy guy in his basement.com or I can't remember, something like that. Um, and, and, and even he, at the end, he was like, the movie is a mess. It, but I have to admit that Hera Nalum is, and then he writes a paragraph about how great she is, but she still can't save this terrible film. Um, so, you know, there, there is that thing, like I predict that she will be someone who in five years from now, I will be bragging about having worked with Tatiana and Kevin and Hera Nalum. Fantastic. Cool. Let's turn things over to Dan. Dan, yeah, we have questions. questions. Good questions from students here. Georgia asks, what was your research process like to get accurate representations of Filipino and Mennonite culture? Did anything surprise you considering your base knowledge gained from growing up in Winnipeg? Uh, yeah, it's a, and it's a great question. Um, you know, I'll focus on the Filipino side of it because they were two different journeys. And when you see the film, you know, you'll 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 understand kind of the difference, I think. But um, yeah, for the Filipino side of it, I mean, I spent a lot of time up in the Maples, which is where the film kind of happens and where we shot it, uh, and was really like eyes opened about what an incredible neighborhood that is. That we just never, I mean, me, I'm a South End Winnipeg, I just never go up there. Uh, but I do now. I go up there all the time. Um, but in terms of the the representation issue, which for me was was a very very serious issue, uh, I the scenes. I did a lot of research and I sat down with a lot of groups of Filipino friends of mine and Filipino actors and Filipino like crew members who work in the film industry who have become good friends. Uh, and I flushed out the ideas for a story and the ideas for a character and flushed out ideas about relationships. And every time I had a version of the story. Uh, before it even turned into a script, I would bring it back to them. And I would say, what do you know, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And what do you think of this? And anytime that I got it wrong, you know, they would, they would let me know and I would sort of adjust. But further to that, I really felt like there are scenes in the film where, you know, everybody on screen is Filipino Canadian. Uh, when she goes back to see her family and she has a bunch of aunts come over, there are gradually more and more aunts every time we go to her place because there's a wedding social coming up, her sister's wedding social. Um, and in those scenes, I sort of, I came in and I did not have a script. Instead, I had an idea about how I wanted the scene to play out in terms of emotional beats. We'd start here, the here, you know, the turn is here, the climax of the scene is here. And then when we end the scene emotionally, this is, you know, where all the characters kind of end up. And so I would go in with my crew and workshop with these actors, but sort of turn it over to them and say, you know, here's the shape of a sort of scene I want to happen. Now you guys show us how it would actually sort of play out. Um, and most importantly, that's because it's a culture that I did not grow up inside. We kind of grew up as a, as a, a you know, a bystander. But secondarily, because, you know, half of those scenes are in Tagalog and I don't speak any Tagalog. I speak a very little tiny bit of Tagalog that I ended up gleaning over the course of shooting the movie. But uh, so, yeah, it was really important for me to get that right. Uh, and so we spend a lot of energy doing it, which is why I'm so happy that someone asked the question. Um, from Margaret, what is your creative process like? Do you usually begin? Like you told us how you got the idea for this movie. Um, is that like similar to your other films? Do you, do you usually begin with a scene in mind or a character? What is kind of the starting point when you have an idea for a film? Yeah, every film is is very, very different. And uh, certainly that's one of the things that I really love about this job. And, uh, you know, it, speaking to a bunch of students in Crecom, a job that when I was your age in Winnipeg, I, I didn't ever think that I would be able to do this job and stay in Winnipeg. But uh, but I but I do. And I and I live in this tiny house. Look at my great success. But I um, love that with every film. Um, it, it comes from a different place. And sometimes I just have an idea. Sometimes I'll hear a news story. There's one that I'm working on right now about identity theft, which kind of is inspired by a story that was in the news last year in Toronto. Um, sometimes uh, a co-writer a co will bring me something, like a kind of a script that they're having trouble with. Uh, two of my films, actually, a co-writer like co who wasn't a co-writer at the time, a writer came to me and was like, hey, I'm having trouble with this. Would you help me out? And I'd help them out and give them these giant ideas. And they'd be like, at a certain point, the writer was like, okay, those ideas changed the script so much that maybe we should just write it together. Um, and we'd sort of work on it uh, together. So they come from all over the place. Uh, and the creative process, which is uh, difficult, is the process of taking an idea 
and really trying to beat it and beat it and beat it uh, until you really feel you've explored all of its possibilities because a lot of ideas seem great when you have them, but then when you really kind of try to put them to work and try and extrapolate meaningful character arcs and try and extrapolate, you know, uh, characters and climaxes and all of the, and all the turns and, and sort of points on the arc that make a story worth telling, some of those ideas you find don't hold up and they're kind of dead ends. Uh, and so, you know, part of the part of the creative process is being open to once in a while sort of chucking an idea and saying, all right, you know, I spent six months on that, but obviously it's just, it's not going anywhere. Um, and, and sort of moving on. I, I got a whole bunch of those. I got like, I got like 20 of those. <laughs> In free comedy, call that first idea, worst idea, right? So <laughs> kinda, that, that doesn't mean it's not good, but don't, uh, don't come become so in love with that first idea that you see it through all the way because you have to know when to, when to quit. Um, yeah. Do you have any specific methods, this is from Earl, do you have any specific methods for actors in an emotional scene, like pouring cold water on their hand for a shocked kind of emotion? It's like, I don't know. Uh, that's a good one. That's a. Uh, um, <laughs> feel the pain of the uh, of the scene. Of the scene. Uh, yeah. No, one of the things that I've discovered about actors that I really love is that no two actors are the same in terms of their process, um, and it's something that a lot of filmmakers have trouble with. Because I mean, I kind of, you know, I went to film school, and then I spent a lot of time at the Winnipeg Film Group in the early days, making my first shorts and sort of spending time with a lot of other filmmakers. And I find that it's a it's kind of a blind spot for a lot of filmmakers because a lot of people are so used to, they love shooting stuff, they love recording stuff, they love editing stuff. They're so used to interacting with a technology where you press a button to get a result. Uh, but with an actor, you can't, you can't do that. Um, and not only that, but once you figure out a certain actor, the next actor you work with, you won't be able to use any of what you used on the last actor because this is a different actor and they work differently. So part of, uh, part of what makes it really fascinating for me and what keeps me interested still after 20 years of making films is every group of actors is a whole new set of, of challenges and getting to know them and getting to know the ways in which I can enable their performance is, is different on an actor by actor basis. Um, and I make use of a lot of improvisation. So uh, some, three of my, of my films have actually been fully improvised on camera. So actors, wow. actors just make up their dialogue and actually in many cases they don't know what's happening uh, in the scene until the scene is shot. And I have, you know, actors keep secrets from one another. Um, and so characters will dump stuff on each other in the scene and then, then they'll have to react, which is I think kind of close to your cold water thing, right? I mean, where, where they're surprised by something and they're on camera surprised by something and they don't have time to think about, I'm an actor in a movie trying to convince people of something. They're just processing like, wait, what? You had an affair, like what? You what? Right? And you get these incredible reactions, which then on take two and three really makes it easy for the actors to access again those emotional states because it's so visceral for them on on take one but yeah part of the process that i love is dealing with actors like these two uh you know uh hera uh is a very impulsive very in the moment very emotionally real actor but there's something kind of volcanic about that so i know that take one and take two are going to be very very different uh and i'm going to have to sort of pick one in the edit suite uh, whereas Christian is a much more focused, much more cognitive. He's much more in his head when he's acting. Uh, and so he'll do something on take one, even sometimes if it wasn't what was written, if it, it ends up being something where they're kind of half improvising, he'll do something on take one. And in take two, he is like a machine. He will exactly repeat it um, with all of the same emotional truth and all of the same authenticity. And we can go seven takes and he is delivering every single take so getting to know that helps me plan how i'm going to shoot my scenes and how i'm going to do my edit and you know etc 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 that's a, a very rewarding part of of being a film director uh this is just an aside for me how many what's the most amount of takes you've had to do for a scene um probably like 12. I, I don't go crazy with the takes i i you know i try and take one and two i'll try and get something close to the script I'll do a take three, four, and five to try to get something different from the script so that we have options. Um, and then I'm going into a take six only if there's been a problem. And so the ones where I'm doing 12 takes, 
uh, or 10 takes are usually not for actors. Usually it's a, it's a scene where there's just a whole bunch of elements that have to all work together. So we've got a difficult camera move and the, the, you know, the boom guy has to sort of get out of the way of a bunch of extras who also, we've got a whole bunch of them and they all have to do specific things as well as the actors have to hit all their marks. And, you know, it's when you have a very complicated shot that involves a whole bunch of crew people and a whole bunch of people in front of the camera, those, oftentimes you'll you'll really get up there before you nail it because every single element has to work perfectly in a take and the longer the take is the less likely you're going to get that in one in in one go uh we have a couple questions about your kind of origins as a filmmaker um one is about hold on let me find it here um how did your process of becoming a film director and taking off the ground work being a Canadian director for Winnipeg, who did you need to approach to get there? And then somebody else asked about going to film school in Buenos Aires, and maybe that you can answer both of those questions by just talking a little bit about how you how you got into this career path. Sure. And yeah, I, I should give us the three-minute uh, warning here. Oh, okay. okay. Three minutes, just so everybody knows. All right, so my life in three minutes. Got it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, you got it. I got out of high school in Winnipeg. I, you know, I decided to go to film school at the time. You couldn't study filmmaking uh, in Winnipeg like you can now. Um, so I went to Toronto, um, and uh, I was at York University, and ended up uh, thinking I knew more than my teachers did, as one does after three years. So I didn't finish my degree, and instead I went to. Argentina on an exchange program, but you had to go to like it was called the Rotary Scholarship, but you have to go to a school there. So I found a film school there and they put me in the film school and it was sort of a cultural exchange. But essentially after all the education was done, I started my career by, and here's where Kenton Larson plays into the picture. I started my career by, um, I came back to Winnipeg. I'd been living in Japan for three years and uh, I started working as a bass player, which is my other uh, is my bass in the show? No, it's over there, I think. Uh, I, I started working as a bass player. And because I played in a bunch of bands, a lot of those bands were like, hey, didn't you go to film school? Because we have some money for a music video. So I started making music videos for the bands that I played in. Um, and my on-set playback expert was, of course, the inimitable Kenton J. Larson. Most of you don't know that his middle name starts with J. Um, and he uh, and, and so I did a bunch of music videos and, and they did kind of OK. And then from the leftover film stock I had from those music videos, because back in those days it was film, um, I started shooting short films on weekends. So we'd have all this gear rented to shoot a music video and we'd have leftover stock and I'd like abscond with the gear over the weekend and shoot my own short films and then return the gear that was supposed to be for the music video on Monday. Um, and I made a couple of short films and a couple my my very first one called Middle. Everyone rejected it. I applied to the Toronto Film Festival and the Cannes Film Festival, as one does. Everyone turned it down, of course. Um, and it played at the Garibaldi Sea and Sky Film Festival in, in BC. I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, as well as the Cabbage Town Film Festival uh, in, a, in a borough of Toronto. And at both those film festivals, it got these tiny little prizes, like second best 16 millimeter film or best film comedy category. Uh, and I was telling Kenton about it. And Kenton was like, you know what you should do? you should call the Winnipeg Free Press and tell them about those prizes. And I was like, what? What? They're not gonna care. And Kenton was like, oh no, no. Not only will they care and will they write the story, but if the story comes to them over the phone and they don't have to go looking for it and they get to go home early, they will take the story. <laughs> so I was like, really? I called the Free Press and I left a message and sure enough, within a minute, somebody called me back. The next day there was this big article in the free press about local filmmaker wins prizes at film festivals. They didn't mention the festivals. They just mentioned that one was in Vancouver and one was in Toronto, thereby implying that I'd actually won prizes at these two giant film festivals. Um, and luckily when I went back to get money for my next short film uh, from an arts council, the Manitoba Arts Council, they were like, oh yeah, read about you in the paper. We know you. And kind of one thing led to another. I did a bunch of shorts as a result of that. And I was developing a short with improvisation at its core, because I've kind of talked about how I do that. And I wanted to make a short film that was all improvised. But when we started improvising, it, get, it, it got so big that it was clearly not a short film. Um, and it ended up being my first feature called, called Inertia, which uh, in 2001 played the Toronto Film Festival. And that's my life in three minutes. Uh, oh, wait, and then a bunch of other stuff. After that, a bunch of other stuff happened, the end. <laughs> That's a, I've never had a guest speaker end by saying the end. It's perfect. <laughs> Finn. 
So, great. yeah, that, this was great, Sean. Thank you so much for spending time with the class in its second week of school and giving them this crash course on filmmaking. And uh, and a round of applause. Uh, the, everyone's mic's off. So a round of figurative oh, applause. Thank you. you. Thank you. And, and I just want to, if I could, one last push, of yeah, course. Please. The film, I propose we never see each other again after tonight, is... Um, playing still at McGilvery and Northgate through to the end of next week, at the very least. If people feel safe going to the cinema, I uh, encourage I, as, as somebody who's gone to the cinema since they reopened, I will assure everybody that it is safe and theaters are taking all the proper precautions and it's fine. It's all good. Go to the movies, guys. Mm -hmm. I'm really, uh, Kenton is still a little bit afraid, I think, but I think I'm, he'll go well for this one. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm catching it right now through the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, Sean, I'm going to go to the theater to see your film. I'm going to yeah, you go go yeah. during a matinee. No one's there. Go on a matinee. You'll have the theater to yourself. <laughs> well, I, I I'm going to surprise you. You're going to see. You're going to see my my uh, admission. You're going to see my tickets in your tally. <laughs> then you will know. I'm not going to tell right you on. when I'm going to go. You'll just see it. Right. When I least expect it, I should expect it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and a little notice to the good people of. Section two, I would normally be calling you right at 11. I'm going to call you a little after that because I got a couple things I want you to watch before class starts, and I will post that in the team right away. Apart from that, thanks again, Sean. This was great. Thank you, Thank Sean. Thank you, guys. Thanks. See you later.